Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Well, we're in the second week of a summer series called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And if you were here last week, you got a book. If you weren't here last week, you don't have a book. And if you'd like one, please raise your hand. Somebody will bring one to you right now. So if you weren't here last week, you want a book. Uh, It's a study guide for the whole summer. If you were here last week and you didn't bring your book back this week, raise your hand and we'll give you one this week. But we can't give you one all 14 weeks, okay, because that's like 7,000 books or something, all right? So, um, but we could give you one today. Uh, A couple of quick things uh, before we get into the message today. Number one is Pastor Brad put a study guide online. So newlifexn.org, if you go on there, you can get a study guide that you can download and use. If you lose this one, you'll have another one. The next thing is over there where it says hashtag Colossians. If you go to hashtag Colossians, you can tweet stuff um, and then you can share it with each other, and people all out there in the Twitter world will know what's going on at New Life this summer. And then the last thing is, you see this chalkboard? There are other ones in the uh, gathering area, all over the gathering area, and there's little uh, chalk markers that you can write down the things that God is doing through your life through the uh, study of Colossians. And so please don't be uh, hesitant. And I guess what's going to happen after they start to fill up, uh, they'll take pictures of them and put it on Facebook. So people out there in Facebook world can know that there's a church in Saxonburg, PA, that loves Jesus and is uh, experiencing his life-changing power in our lives. So we're going to start off the message today with a little survey. And here is the question. It's a one-question survey. I would like you to raise your hand if you come to church to be entertained. All right. One person back there. Maybe he is a little clued in. That's Mark. He's our student pastor. All right. Um, He comes to church to be entertained. Well, actually, if you've known me for a while, you know that my goal every week is to entertain you. Because back in 1992, I found out what the definition of entertain is. It's this to capture and hold the attention for an extended period of time. And I looked on dictionary.com to see if it's changed, you know, in the last couple decades. And here it is from dictionary.com, to hold the attention of pleasantly or agreeably. So every week, my goal is to capture and hold your attention for an extended period of time. Mostly I do that pleasantly and agreeably, except for the one week when I came back from Cuba, not so much. But other than that... Other than that, I do it pleasantly and agreeably because here's what I know. If you fall asleep during this time, you can't learn anything. And so my goal for the past decades has been to entertain people who show up for worship. Now, the thing is, we live in an entertainment culture. Everybody is trying to capture and hold our attention for extended periods of time because they want us to watch their TV shows or their movies or they want us to buy their products or they want us to accept their points of view. And so it's tough to capture and hold people's attention because out there in the world they have you know, million and billion dollar budgets and we don't. But my goal, as I said, is to capture your attention and to hold it for an extended period of time. And I especially don't want to preach when I sit here on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights because back in 92 I also looked up the definition of preach and here it is. To disseminate religious information particularly in boring or tiresome manner. I thought, well, I wonder if that definition has changed over the years. It has. It's even worse. It's to give earnest advice as on religious or moral subjects or the like to do this in an obtrusive or tedious way. Obtrusive, in case you don't know, means like in your face. 
I don't want to do that either. So I don't preach, I entertain. That's what I do. That's my goal. At least I hope so, because preaching is the method of religion. Preaching is the method of religion. Both the definitions of preaching from 1992 and 2015 have this in common. It's passing along religious or moral information in boring, tiresome, obtrusive, tedious manners. And, and you know, there are some preachers who think that because they have a call from God on their life and because the words that they're teaching are true, it doesn't matter what their method is. But I would submit to you that today that the method always matters. Because while this book is true, and when we open up the book of Genesis chapter 1, for those of you who know, that's the first book of the Bible and the first verse of the Bible, you know, always when you turn to Genesis 1-1, you find out there was nothing and God created the heavens and the earth. And when you turn to Samuel, you will always find that David always kills Goliath. I mean, have you ever read the, the account like for the 50th or 60th time and go, I wonder if David's going to kill Goliath this time or if Goliath's going to win this time? You don't, right? You always know Jesus is going to walk on water. You always know he's going to teach with an authority like nobody before or since. You know that he's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise from the dead. And if you read Colossians, you know that Paul is always going to tell them that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, if you think about that for 30 seconds, it will blow your mind. That there is a person who was the visible image of the invisible God. But those things are always going to happen. So if you go to any of the 350,000 churches across America, there's only two things that differ from, from preacher to church. And that is whether they believe that this book is true and how they present the truth that they believe. Because as the, as the facts are, there have been people preaching for thousands of years and entertaining. They have to choose. And when you go into a church, I guarantee you within 10 minutes, you're going to know whether that church's goal is to preach or to entertain, whether they're just dispensing religious information or whether they believe that there's a living God who deserves to have our attention, who deserves to have us live our lives in a way that will glorify and honor him. And I know some of you are saying, well, I didn't think that's what entertain meant. I thought like entertain meant that you're sitting up here telling jokes, which by the way, wouldn't be that entertaining. But if, if, if you are sitting back there and you're the audience, you know, and the band is playing and you're the audience and you clap... You know, by the way, it's okay to clap for God all the time. If you, you know, like one of the things that bothers me, I'll just, this is a tangent. Okay. One of the things that bothers me is after a powerful song and we go, like what? Okay. Never mind. Okay. So let's move on. I think you understand what I'm saying. So anyway, as we sit here, as you sit here, I guess I'm sitting too, but you know, you're not the audience. You are not the audience. I just want you to know that. When I get up here, I'm under no illusion. I know who the audience is. The audience is God. God is always the audience. And I'm, or Mark, or Brad, or Jane, or whoever's up here, and the worship band, we are the prompters, and you are the performers. You see, you're sitting and sort of resting, listening, getting ready to go out into the world where you're going to be light and salt for seven days of the week. You're the performers. God is the audience. Don't ever sit there and think, I'm the audience. And, uh, because just because you're being entertained, because your attention is being captured and held for an extended period of time, pleasantly and agreeably, you're not the audience. God is. And we're the performers. You're the performers. I'm actually a performer. When I leave from here, I'm prompting right now so that you can celebrate God's presence 
here and now, worship God, and then go out and live this coming week for Him. So um, that's what's really, really important. And my goal is that when you leave here today or any day, that you will be as enthusiastic to serve God and to perform for Him as Pete Rose was to play baseball. Now, some of you are so young, you don't know who Pete Rose is or he is, who he was. He was one of the greatest baseball players that ever lived and ever played the game. In fact, he broke Ty Cobb's all-time record of 4,191, now 4,192, but he actually 4,200 and something. He was the player manager of the Cincinnati Reds when I lived there. I got to see him get that hit that broke Ty Cobb's record. And Pete Rose, thing you need to know about Pete Rose, he was not the tallest baseball player who ever lived. He was not the fastest baseball player who ever lived. He was not the smartest baseball player who ever lived because while he was managing the Cincinnati Reds, he bet on his team to win, which, you know, I guess if you're going to bet, you at least bet your team will win. But that's against the rules. And so he's been banned from baseball for life. Nevertheless, he's still one of the greatest baseball players who ever lived. And he was once asked, Pete, what makes you such a great baseball player? And his answer was, and I've never forgotten it, and I, I mean, this has been, and I think it's one of the greatest quotes of all time. He said, I'm such a great baseball player because I would walk through hell in a gasoline suit to play baseball. And the first time I heard that, here's what I thought. Would I walk through hell in a gasoline suit to tell somebody about Jesus? Because baseball is a game. Now, I know there's some people that had a hard time sleeping last night because the Pirates lost 5-4 to the Braves in a walk-off home run. But nobody's going to go to heaven or hell because of that. It's just a game. And yet Pete Rose, Pete Rose committed his life to that game and as a result became one of the greatest baseball players who ever lived, even though he didn't have all the tools that you're supposed to have to be a great baseball player. And here's the thing. Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Community Church, many years ago, probably four decades ago now, made this quote. It's another one of my favorite quotes. We become what we're committed to in life. We become what we're committed to in life. We do. Whatever it is that becomes the God of our heart, that grows and we live it out in our everyday lives. For Pete Rose, it was baseball. What is it for you and me? We, we know from the, the letter to the Colossians that for them it was Jesus Christ. That was what was the, the commitment that drove their lives. And that's why we're studying this book this summer. Because Paul, who had never met these people, even though he had never met these people, wrote a letter in, in, in the introductory part, which we're going to look at today. Ephes or Colossians 1. I keep getting the wrong book. Colossians 1, 1 to 8. He's going to say to them, you are committed people to Jesus Christ. And he didn't even meet them. What if somebody wrote us a letter that never met us? Somebody maybe lives in Pittsburgh, let's say, and they've heard about New Life, maybe from me because I started it just like Paul heard about um, Colossians from Epaphras who started that church. And what would they say about us, about our commitments? Because we say that our mission is to share the new life of Jesus Christ with the world one person at a time. And we invest thousands and thousands of dollars every year here and to the ends of the earth sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ. We have ministries for children and young people and adults and we gather for worship and all of those things. But here's the question, what about the rest of the week? What about your everyday life? You see, Pete Rose was such a great baseball player because he gave 100% all the time. When Pete Rose drew a walk, you know, four balls, he ran to first base. It's called a walk. He ran to first base. They called him Charlie Hustle 
And some people did it as a compliment. Some people did it as a jab, but he didn't care. All he cared about was being the greatest baseball player that ever lived. And we can debate whether he is or not. But what we can't debate is that Pete Rose got the most out of his life as a baseball player, even though he didn't have all the tools, because he committed himself 100% to doing that. Now, before we turn to our text, I want us to look at today's take-home point. And if you're a first-time guest here, every week we seek to make one point. I've been building up to it so far. I'm going to be building up to it for the rest of the message. And here it is. When Jesus is added, lives change. When Jesus is added, lives change. I'm going to put Jesus up here. And then I'm going to put a plus, and I'm going to put ED, and not plus ed, plussed. When Jesus is plussed to anybody's life, that life changes. For example, Jesus plus Chris equals everything, because if Jesus plus nothing equals everything, by definition, Jesus plus Chris equals everything. Jesus plus Kim equals everything. Jesus plus whoever, another Chris Equals everything. Back there, Jesus plus Brent equals everything. Jesus plus everybody, put your name in there, equals everything. Because when Jesus is first and he's plus to something, it's everything. You can't have me plus Jesus because that puts me first. Jesus has to be first. And that's the the take-home point for today is when Jesus is added to anybody's life, the life changes. Now, here's the thing. That change is instantaneous. In fact, Jesus said it's so instantaneous, it's like being born again. Boom. You're, you're a new person. Born again. Uh, a lot of people talk about it being saved. Paul did. Paul the apostle said, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Instant. Instantaneous. Now, you may have noticed, if you come here all the time, we don't talk that much about being born again and getting saved around here. We talk about it because they're both biblical concepts, but that's just the beginning. What we talk about, oh man, I forgot my commitment card, uh, connection card. But on the connection card, right in the middle, it says this, I committed my life to Jesus today. You see, it's true that people who trust Jesus for the first time are born again. It's true that they're saved, but what's important, I mean, that's important. But what's even more important for the rest of your life is that you've made that a commitment because I know people and what they have done is they said, I got born again. I got saved. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Now let me get back to my regular life. And they never let Jesus change them. And Jesus didn't come and die on the cross and rise from the dead so we could be saved or born again. And that was that. He came and died on the cross and rose again so our sins could be forgiven, so we could be saved, born again, and so the rest of our life could be changed because Jesus plus anything is everything. And if that's a person, the life is going to change. So let's turn right now to our study guides on page 8. If you have a study guide, page 8. If you don't have a study guide, it'll be up on the screen. And we're going to do something we haven't done for a while. We used to do it almost every week. We're going to read this passage aloud together as a group. From Colossians 1, 1 to 8. Read with me. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people 
which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the first day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your written word, your truth, your good news. And we pray today as we reflect on what happened in the lives of the Colossian Christians because of Jesus, that we would have that same impact in our lives. God, whether it's for the very first time to trust him as Savior and Lord, or whether it's to deepen our commitment to live and serve him, we ask that you would do what's necessary for us to be changed in the way that will glorify you most. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul wrote, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. So Paul introduces himself to the Colossian believers who he has never met, as we said last week. And he says two things about himself, that he has been chosen by the will of God. Now, isn't that cool? Wouldn't it be cool to be chosen by the will of God to do something? Well, you are. You and I are. We all are. We're chosen by the will of God before the foundation of the universe to live our lives in a way that will ultimately glorify Him and that we will ultimately enjoy because we're doing what we were created to do. And then Paul said something else, that the purpose for which he was chosen was to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, apostle of Christ Jesus, apostle is someone sent out with the purpose of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And we've already said during the Lord's Supper what the good news is, that there's a God who has a son named Jesus who came to the earth as a human. And who lived and died and rose again. So our sins could be taken away and we can have a new life in heaven forever, yes. But right now, here and now, we can live differently because of him. So that's the good news. Now the thing about Paul that you need to know, maybe you know this already. He originally was known as Saul and he was a Jew. And he wasn't just a Jew, he was a Pharisee. So that man could preach. You know, he could bore you to tears. He could quote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I bet you he could probably keep going. And he could tell you all the rules and all the regulations. And Saul believed that the church was a heresy, meaning it wasn't the truth of God. He believed that Jesus was a fraud and that Jesus was not the Messiah, God's appointed deliverer. He believed that the church needed to be eradicated, wiped out from the face of the planet. And he actually had permission from the higher-up religious leaders in Jerusalem to go to these various places and arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to be put in jail and maybe even killed. That was Paul's life purpose. Saul, he was called then. And as he was going from Jerusalem to Damascus one day to find the Christians there and bring them back to Jerusalem, he met Jesus. Now, it wasn't like, you know, I would meet Brian by walking up, shaking hands, say, hey, I'm Chris. What's your name? I'm Brian. This was a different kind of meeting because Jesus had already lived on the earth. He had already died, already risen from the dead, already gone back to heaven when Paul met him. Saul met him. Let's just call him Paul, okay? No, we're going to have to call him Saul because that's what Jesus is going to call him. 
So here's what happened. Saul is walking along from Jerusalem to Damascus. And as he's walking, there's this bright light into heaven. And out of the bright light speaks this person who says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul has no clue who this is. What Saul knows is this is not a normal thing. I mean, this isn't a regular day at the office. And immediately Saul's answer is this. Who are you? Lord, Lord, master, owner. Saul knows this is from higher up. And, and Jesus says, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. And in that instant, everything changed for Saul. I mean, he was blinded by the experience. He went into Damascus and he was led by the hands. And then a Christian came to him three days later. During the three days, Saul prayed and fasted. That means he didn't eat anything. And he actually didn't drink anything either. And three days later, this Christian man named Ananias came to him and said, you know, God told me, Jesus told me to come and, you know, lay hands on you and pray for you and you're going to get healed. And then you're going to get the Holy Spirit. You're going to be baptized and you're going to teach for the Gentiles. That's the non-Jews. That would have been really bad news for Saul before all of this happened. But it was good news. And Saul did something incredible. Instead of arresting the Christians, he went down to the local synagogue, the place where the Jews worshipped, and he stood up in front of them and he started teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Saul's commitments changed so radically that he changed his name to Paul so he could witness to Gentiles more effectively. So radically that the scriptures which he thought proved that Jesus was a fraud now proved because he saw them with clear eyes and with the Holy Spirit guiding him proved that Jesus is the Messiah and that there's nobody else that could be the Messiah. And for the rest of his life, he changed day by day, by week, by month, by year to become more and more like Jesus to the point that he could say, it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. And that's what we're talking about. Jesus was plus to Paul's life. And Paul was radically changed. And in the introduction, he says something else. He says, oh yeah, and Timothy helped write the letter. Timothy, he was changed too. He's now your brother because of Jesus. You see, once Jesus becomes Lord and Savior in our lives, we join this big family, tremendously big family. All believers in all times and all places are our brothers and sisters. And Timothy helped write the letter. Okay, then it says this. He addresses his readers. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Hmm. Paul calls these people holy. That means set apart by God for God's purposes. He says that they're faithful brothers and sisters. Now the thing is, they weren't. Before Jesus was plus to their lives... They were lost. In fact, Paul would tell them later in the letter, we're going to see this, that they were enemies of God. They were destined for hell. And then one day they met Jesus. And when their lives were introduced to Jesus and they trusted him, they were born again, they were saved, they became holy, set apart for God. They became faithful brothers and sisters. And, and here's the thing. I, I, I thought about this while I was uh, getting ready for, for, for uh, entertaining you. This, I almost said preaching this week. Um, those brothers and sisters in Colossae, we're going to meet them someday. We're going to heaven, right? If we know Jesus, we're going to go to heaven. And someday we're going to walk up to somebody and go say, what's your name? Oh, my name is, you know, I don't know, Zechariah. Where are you from? I'm from Colossae. Who? I heard of you. I read about you. You are cool people. And then he's going to say, who are you? I'm going to say, Chris, where are you from, Gypsy? Never heard of it. <laughs> but we have a lot of time to get to know each other. Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus Christ. 
And, you know, when I say I sit here to entertain you, you do need to understand that doesn't mean that I haven't prepared. In fact, it means I've prepared a great deal. I've read this passage in several different translations and in the Greek. I've prayed diligently, and I thought of a whole bunch of different directions that we could go today because for 2,000 years, people have been preaching from this text. And, and, and I want us to understand, and I want us to grow, and I want us to go out there so pumped up that we'll be like Pete Rose and that we would walk through hell in a gasoline suit to tell somebody about Jesus. So he says after he says all this good stuff, he says, grace to you and peace. And when Paul writes letters, he always says that, grace to you and peace. And it's always grace and then peace. Do you know why? Because you can't have peace, which means a sense of wholeness, a sense that everything's well, even when everything is going you know, down the drain, you can't have that till God's grace comes in. Because God's grace is Jesus being plus to our life. It's his unmerited favor, his blood shed on the cross so we can have a new life with no cost. So we get his grace and then it gives us his peace. And then Paul says, we always pray for you and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. Now, Paul, who never met these people, says, I pray for you all the time, and I prayed for you for all the time since I heard about you. That you have this sense of love for God in Jesus Christ and this sense of love for God's people, and you gained it ever since something very important happened. You got the perspective of heaven. You see, as soon as Jesus Christ becomes Lord and Savior in our life, we get a heaven perspective. We know we're going to heaven someday. And so we can look from the end back into our life. And here's what happens. When the life is going really bad, we can remember one day it's not going to go bad anymore. There isn't going to be any more problem in our life. No more problems, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more disease. One day, because we are not standing in the world witnessing to Jesus... We are standing in Jesus witnessing to the world. And so even when on our worst day, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that's what Paul is saying. Once you got that perspective, wow, your lives really change. And now his next words are the basis for the title of today's message. The title is Immediate Change, Lasting Change. Listen carefully because you'll see the immediate change and the lasting change. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So, do you see the immediate and the lasting nature of the change? He says that the Colossian believers had the expectation of heaven ever since when? Since they first heard. They first heard. As soon as they heard it, they received it. And as soon as they received it, they were born again. They were saved. And now that immediate change had taken place in their lives. And here's what I want you to know. Every day, pretty much every single day, I pray a prayer that this weekend, which would be any weekend, this weekend in particular, last night and today in first and second service, that Someone would come in through these doors who has not yet ever made a first-time commitment to Jesus. I pray that they will come in and that they will make a commitment to Jesus Christ. That they'll be born again, they'll be saved, but they'll make a commitment to go out and live a new life in Jesus Christ. And I pray that every day that God will do that every week. And I believe that it's going to happen every week. And so far in the, from January until now, 
in this church through the ministry of relevant student ministries and children's ministries and some other things we do and the weekend worship, 57 people have made first-time commitments to Jesus Christ. I'm excited about that. Now, that's pretty cool, right? Now, the thing about that is that first-time commitment is intended to become a life lived in Jesus' name. And that's what I'm talking about, the lasting change. And let me read again what Paul said, because when we look at this lasting change, uh, it's the same verse I already read, verse 6. It says this, this same good news came to you, that came to you, is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Uh, if you want to, I would encourage you to underline the word bear, bear, words, bearing fruit. Bearing fruit is biblical talk for change, for tangible, noticeable change and growth. Once we are born again or saved, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to bear fruit. Now I have, Nancy and I have some blueberry bushes and raspberry bushes and strawberry plants in our backyard. And I'll tell you what, our blueberry bushes and our raspberry bushes, man, they are bearing fruit. There are, there's tons of fruit on them right now. But guess what color they are? Green, yes. It's too soon for them to be ripe. And we have a little four-year-old neighbor named Cooper. And he came down on Thursday night. And, you know, and I said, Cooper, come in to the, we have this big enclosure so the birds can't eat our blueberries. Come in and look at the blueberries. And he looked and his eyes got this big. And he said, I'm going to eat a lot of blueberries this summer. And he is going to eat a lot of blueberries this summer. But, you know, that was Thursday night. So then on Friday morning, he came down and he said, Chris, can we, can we look at the blueberries? Sure. And he looked and he said, they're not ready yet. No, it's tough for a four-year-old to wait for blueberries to get ripe. The thing is, this is what's supposed to happen in our lives. I mean, we have little tiny green berries. That's the fruit that we produce at first because we haven't, you know, we haven't, first of all, we haven't got the Holy Spirit figured out. In our life, we haven't let him take charge. We haven't maybe learned the word enough. We haven't prayed in an ongoing way. We haven't, we haven't really changed that, that mind and perspective to the point where we're bearing fruit. But we have some strawberry plants. And those strawberry plants, the fruit on them right now is red. And as I said, this is my birthday. And I'm going home after church. And I'm going to pick red strawberries. And we're going to mash them up and put them on strawberry shortcake. And that's what we do on my birthday every year. Because the best food of all is strawberry shortcake. I'm pretty sure it's the main course in heaven. <laughs> anyway, you see, you can't mash up green strawberries and put them on, but we're supposed to grow up. We're supposed to be red strawberries. We're supposed to be, actually, I say purple blueberries, because blue blueberries, there isn't such a thing. They're like, well, I guess there are, but they're really purple. Okay, whatever. You know, but the point is, you don't eat green raspberries. You don't eat green strawberries. You don't eat green blueberries. You eat the mature ones. And in the analogy here, what Paul is saying, this fruit didn't just, it's not just being born here in Colossae, where you all are, it's all over the world. All over the world, people who have come to know Jesus, they're bearing fruit, which means that lives are being changed. Their lives are being changed. Other people's lives are being changed. And there's nothing like a person who has been saved and born again who didn't stop there. But who said, I'm going to grow up. I'm going to be mature. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit work in my life. I'm going to read this book until I understand what it says. I'm going to meet with other believers in worship. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go out there. And when somebody I meet needs to know Jesus, 
I'm going to tell them. And, and to be honest with you, I'd rather walk through hell in a gasoline suit to tell somebody about Jesus than go to Tibet. Because I haven't done the hell, hell in a gasoline suit, but I think it might be easier than Tibet because I've been there twice. But we, and, and I just said to Mark Geppert, who's the guy that took me there, you know, I'm never going back to Tibet again unless I do. Because never is a long time. And, you know, the thing is, here you sit. You're getting ready to go back out there in the world and to live this week. You're, you're getting ready to grow a little bit more this week, to be changed a little bit more this week. And the coolest thing is, in fact, it's, it's the take-home point. It says, I will welcome the change Jesus brings in my life this week. I will welcome the change Jesus brings in my life this week. I've been a follower of Jesus for almost 46 years now. And, and four weeks ago when I went to South Carolina for that week, which I thought I was going there to write a book. Um, but whenever I spent that week with God, he turned my life upside down or right side up. And, and so now every day I spend an hour with him to start off the day. And you say, well, you're a preacher. Shouldn't you do that? Well, I'm an entertainer. But anyway, shouldn't I do that? Yeah, I should do that, and, and I did sort of do that, but it was always sort of like pray a little bit, then exercise a lot, and then read my Bible a little bit, and then go about my day. But God said, I want you to be with me. I don't care about all that stuff until you be with me. So yesterday morning, I was being with God uh, at Rails to Trails, and I was walking along, and I had done my mile and a half out, and I was coming back, and here's this guy, and I'm not being, I'm not being mean. I'm just telling you the truth, okay? This guy was like old. I'm old, but I mean, this guy was in like his upper 80s, early 90s, and he's walking like this up the trail. And he had gotten about, uh, probably about maybe three quarters of a mile from the parking lot by the time I came to him. I said, good morning, sir. He said, good morning. I said, how are you doing? And he said, this gets harder to do every day. And a light bulb went off in my brain. Wow. You know what he said? He's still doing it every day. He's still walking every day. And what did he say? He said it gets harder every day, but he didn't quit. He's still doing it. And I, I started doing some math in my head. I, I'm 58 today. This guy's, let's say he's 93, 35 more years. What if I have 35 more years? I know a couple of things. It's going to get harder. It is, and I know that. It's already gotten harder. Um, but 35 years is a long time. And you go, oh, you're, you probably aren't going to live 35 more. Okay, so what if I only live three? Am I going to be like Pete Rose in baseball? Or am I going to sit on the sidelines and watch? I'm not sitting on the sidelines and watch. I don't know what you're going to do. And some of you have 80 years left. Some of you might have 100 years left. I don't know. And you go, well, Jesus might come back. Yeah, he might. And if he does, it doesn't matter, right? But if Jesus doesn't come back, what are you going to do? What am I going to, what are we going to do? Here's what I know. You have family members, you have friends, you have coworkers, you have people you play soccer with or baseball or something else. They're waiting to be entertained by something other than what the world offers. They're waiting to have their attention captured and held by the truth of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ. That's where the pleasantly and you know, agreeably goes. Because people aren't waiting to be screamed at about Jesus. People aren't waiting to be told the rules about Jesus. People are just tired of being entertained to death and having nothing significant to show for it. And I know that. Because I've talked to a lot, a lot, a lot of people. 
out there in the world. How's your life? Eh, it's okay. Well, what are you doing? Eh, not much. You know, what are you going to do? I don't know. Okay, well, I might make a lot of money. How's that going to make you feel? Well, I don't know. Better than I am now, maybe. Somebody told me yesterday, you know, I, I just want to be happy. I want to tell you something. Happy isn't all it's cracked up to be. Because happy is a moving target. If you think happy is 10 more dollars or 100 more dollars, 1,000 more dollars, what about when you get that? Well, then happy will be 10,000 more dollars. Happy is a relationship. Somebody's going to make me happy. Really? My experience is Jesus Christ died so we can have a new life that's better than anything the world has to offer, ever has had to offer, ever will have to offer. And it doesn't always make us happy. But it's always better. And in my experience, my relationships get better when I get better related to Jesus Christ. And I found out that when I serve other people, because I'm serving Jesus in his name, my life feels better than when somebody's serving me. Now, it's going to feel pretty good to watch Nancy make my strawberry shortcake today. I'll give you that. But to be honest with you, there are things that are more durable and lasting than strawberry shortcake. And they all start with Jesus. And when Jesus is added to somebody's life, it's far more significant than anything you can think of. So somebody's out there right now, where you work, where you play, somebody's out there right now in your family, and they're lost. And they're enemies of God. And if they died right now, they would go to hell forever. And Paul said... <laughs> Because our lives changed in an instant, and because we're bearing fruit and we're, we're growing more and more mature, we're the hope of the world for those people, because Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, and you and I are the only Bible some people are going to read. So let's go out today committed to Jesus Christ, because we do become what we're committed to in life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for being committed to us, for sending Jesus. Thank you, God, that because Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death and rose again, our lives can bear fruit that will last. And God, my prayer today is simple. I pray that all of us will just go out of this place and commit ourselves to putting you first that we will welcome the change that you bring in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.